morning. Uh, it's, I'm really glad to, to open the word with you this morning. And, and even from that, can I just acknowledge what a miracle? It's is a ritual. Like we do this every week. We open our Bibles. We pray that his, he would plant his word in us and, and we open the scriptures. But for most of Christian history, that wasn't even technically technologically an option that everyone would have a copy of God's word in their hands and then and then later for hundreds of years the the Roman Catholic Church kind of opposed the idea like whoa if we give everyone their own copy like who knows what kind of ideas they'll come up with well I think the Bible means this you know and then now even for me and all my church history my personal experience up until this church it just seemed like there was more important things to talk about. Like the pastor was more interested in telling this clever, witty stories and things like that. But here we are in this moment with our noses in the word of God to be fed and nourished. And so within this passage, getting into it, I feel like to me, uh, Paul's argument is summed up in in 20 through 21. And so we are going to camp out here for a good half of our time And his prayer is that Christ will be honored. That means seen as great in my body, meaning like in my tangible, concrete, day-to-day life, whether by life or by death, Jesus would look like his treasure. Verse 21, for to me, Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we're going to camp out there, but you'll see like he didn't really tell us how to live or give us any, anything, that, that's an indicative statement saying, for me, this is how things are. And then later, we're going to spend some time in the imperative statement saying, here, like verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we'll end looking at 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So putting those verses together, what I want to present and, and, and get us all on the same page, I think uh, I tried to articulate it in the mouth of a Christian. Paul, any true, truly saved person would articulate this concept, something like this. In my living a lifestyle embracing the gift of suffering, I yearn that Jesus would look as great as I found him to be for me. In my dying, may it punctuate my life with the exclamation point of Jesus is better. I want to get us on that page. I want to be on that that page that's here in front of us. So let me pray. God, uh, normally my my task here is to, to take a thousands of year old um, document and, and make it clear, make it relevant to us in 21st century Western culture. But today, though, my prayer uh, is that I see your word is far too clear. There's nothing ambiguous in this text that I see. It, it just, I pray that I'd get out of the way, that, that I wouldn't dull the sharp edge um, that cuts into our hearts today, that, that I wouldn't shy away for the sake of our um, Western lifestyles to um, present this just clear word. Give us hearts that are ready for your scalpel. In your name, Jesus, amen. Amen. So Paul's dilemma here in this first paragraph, this first chunk of text, you know, through verse 26 he's letting us in on a dilemma as he's wrestling through 
attention within his heart. He's in prison awaiting Roman judgment. They'll either let him go or they'll kill him. And he's not depressed at that, at that thought. He's not given over to apathy. And he's not um, ambivalent, like, hey, case okay, so whatever will be, will be. Like, never live or die, who cares? He hopes that they will just do away with him. Like, that, he's like, that's, that's what I want. He thinks it's so much better to be in the unveiled presence of Jesus Far better, he says. Like, there's no contest. Paul's like, I, it's up to me. I'm gone. I would so much rather they just dispatch me to the, the pleasures of, of my Savior. So what's the dilemma? What's his tension? He, he tells us what he wants. <clears throat> he says, on the other hand, when I'm in heaven, once I'm there, I no longer have the honor of being able to proclaim uh, the testify to the work that the Messiah has done in this man named Saul's life. Remember Saul, like we, we have a word like radical to describe what happened to this man, Paul, Saul, from seething venomous threats against the followers of Jesus to saying this, for to me, Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is nothing short of a heart transplant. You see this is his heartbeat. There's even a rhyme in, in this, um, in the Greek. There's no verb is. To live is Christ. To die is gain. We, we add that so that it m- makes an English sen- proper sentence. But in the Greek, it's, it's a rhyme that says, living Christos, dying kurdos. It's just his heartbeat, living Christos, dying Kurtos, living Christos, dying Kurtos. That to die is, is gain. To live is Christ. This is his heartbeat that God has given him. And so notice that he starts that phrase. He's just saying, for me, this is a, this is a truth, for me. This is how I live. <clears throat> he has his own conviction about the meaning of life. And that's fine with, with our culture. You can think that life is about whatever you want for you. And everyone needs to fill in that blank for themselves, right? For me, living is fill in the blank. My life is about what? My days are spent toward X. Or, or it's like, well, once I have this, then I'll be truly living. Then I'll be fully alive. Like, then I can start, I can actually start. I can actually begin. How many of you feel like that? Like, well, I haven't really started to, to live my life until I get that. Until I cross this hurdle, then life begins. Until I'm married or until I, I own this home or whatever the conviction would be for you. You, you should have both the conviction to determine explicitly what it is for you, what you want that phrase to be, what you want to be remembered for. For, you know, for Jason, to living is what? We should each have that filled in for ourselves and then also have the honesty to acknowledge, oh, when I look at like, the hours of my day and how I actually live my life, it may reflect a different reality and when... Your reality is either your words or your deeds. Your deeds are the reality. 
And so we need both the conviction to say, like, here's what I want. I think living is, hopefully, Christ. But you look at our lives, and, and that will tell us one way or the other what, our, what for us living is. That blank, for me, life is being married or making, maybe making a difference in this world, career success. But we often unintentionally fill it in as like, you know, our role as a mother or sexual pleasures or it, you don't say like, oh, for me, living is having a Pinterest perfect house. But people come and visit and, and any guest can clearly see where your value, where your life um, is drawn from. Or you may just have this vague hope that one day you're, you'll be able to figure out an answer to that question. Like for, you, for me, life is figuring out what life is. What is the meaning of my life? But the blank, however you fill in that blank for living, for me living is blank, determines how, you'll, how you've defined dying automatically. You know, for me, living is X and dying is X. And if you've plugged in something, anything other than Christ, anything in, in, of this world, of this present age, doesn't matter if it's sinful, doesn't matter if it's a good thing that God's given you. For me, living is anything in this present age. It doesn't really matter what. Automatically, the second blank now says loss. For me, to die is loss. Whatever it is in that second blank, a good thing, your marriage, your kids, your house, your family, your, your lifestyle, like whatever it is there, death means it's gone. Everything you live your life for, apart from Christ, you stand to lose. It's not even a risk. It's a guarantee. You'll lose it. He's the only thing you have in life and death. Only if the first blank says, for me to live is Jesus, only then can there be any good news about what goes in the second blank. Death is gain. So Hebrews chapter 2 says that since therefore the children, talking about us, humans, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." So we've all been subject to lifelong slavery because we know death is awaiting us. Like, I hope at times you think about that moment where you be surrounded by all the grandchildren and loved ones and you'll just be peaceful or will it be an ugly Generally, death is not pretty, you know, and and generally a lot of people don't have warning. We're not promised that we're going to make it through this service. So if we think about that moment and that fear that it's all going to be over. I mean, Satan can always dangle his secret weapon in front of you. You know, you get a little bit out of line and you start getting too radical for Jesus and he can just dangle, tick, tock, tick, tock. It'll all be over soon. 
it's all going to be taken away. He could say, I'll rob you of everyone you've ever loved, whether they go first or you do. All the joy you've ever known, that house you've worked so hard to make beautiful, the money in the bank, it's all going to be mine. You'll rot in a grave. Your name will be forgotten. In X number of years, you won't be remembered for anything. So eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we die. Get it all in now because soon it'll all be over. And that's how he dangles this fear in front of us that makes us hold tightly to our life. For Paul and for every true Christian, we answer that threat, that threatening voice with, I know a guy who rose from a conquered grave. I, I, I've seen Jesus with the, eyes of my faith, with the eyes of faith resurrected, and so I know what's in store for me, Satan. I don't need to have my best life now. It's coming later. Your kiss of death, Satan, it's gain. Thank you for giving me Christ forever. To die is gain, he says. G- gain what? He says in the text, why would he rather die? It's because to be with Christ is far better. So it's Christ either way. To me, living is Christ. Dying is Christ. Paul is invincible. I mean, he could tell his persecutors, if you let me live, you'll get more of Christ. That's what you're going to get from me. If you kill me, I get more of Christ. It's just a win-win. It's, well, it's a win and a greater win. He's invincible. Life, from, for, for him, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell. There's no scheme of man that could ever gri- uh, rip me from his hand. It's Christ either way in life and death. A martyr named Christopher Love hundreds of years ago before his execution for his faith, he, he had a note sent to his wife. And it said, Today, they will sever me from my physical head, but they cannot sever me from my spiritual head. Christ. Invincible. There's only one way to get at this. Like, I want that, right? Don't you want to live with that fearless living and invincible dying? I want to get at that, and there is only one way. For Paul, for Christopher Love, for any, anyone that's experienced this, that's an encounter with the person of Jesus. Okay, it shifts your reality. Everything is now, like, you have new eyes. You know, it, it, I thought of Neo in The Matrix, right? He's, he's awoken to a reality that's behind the curtain of the reality he was born into. And it really changes how he interacts with the reality he was born into, doesn't it? In pretty miraculous ways. <clears throat> Once you've experienced that, like you can see through the illusions. Like you can peer behind the curtains of this world and the threats of the enemy, the threat, the fear of death, that you've got to live your best life now. You've got to get it in, make a day's count, because it's all going to be over soon. You can peer behind that illusion and say, no, my, my best days are far ahead of me, forever. I can be open-handed with my life and my death here. Paul, though, he's not careless with his life. 
he's not just ready to die for a concept, you know, like democracy. Or he's not ready to die for a cause. He's not ready to die even for Christianity. He's ready to die for Christ because he met him, because it shifted his reality, because he's personally found a friend that's better. He's personally found the lover of his soul that he'd rather be with. Dying for him is a win-win because it, it makes Jesus look precious to those around and it ushers him home into the fullness of joy in the presence of his friend forever. A martyr's death shouts, Jesus is better than life. It, it backs up, it validates a Christian's life, right? The, the way they've actually lived. It's the exclamation mark at the end of the sentence that has been saying, Jesus is better, I'm telling you he's better, and then you punctuate it. You may not be called to a martyr's death, many of us in this room. Some of us, I pray, are, you know, someone else, right? But still, I pray someone, that some of us are given that honor, that you stand before the judgment seat one time and you say to Jesus, I, I knew it. I knew you were better. They told me I, I, could, I could keep my family. I could keep everything I loved in life if I would just give up you. And I said, no, he's better. And I knew it. I'm here. And like, wouldn't that just be a great honor? But many of you may not be called to that. But every one of us have been called to a martyr's life that proclaims to the watching world, he's better. You got nothing on Jesus. Like, my living is his. My dying is his. It's from him. It's to him. It's through him. It makes him look as good as he really is, as glorious as you've actually experienced him to be. You know, if that's your heart, God is going to see to it that circumstances come in your life where, hey, a normal person would run and cower from loss and pain and lack and suffering, sickness, and even death. But what confounds the world is that they see you in those opportunities and you're living as though, I'm all right with this. I, I'm more than all right because of all I have in Jesus Imagine the scenario, though. Your knife is to your throat or whatever. Imagine, and you, you pray that you would answer like Paul, to live as Christ, to die is gain. You know, like Paul, I, I hope I would seal my testimony with my blood, but it is worthless to pretend that you would say yes in that moment. If here, now, in your moments today and this week, you can't kill a temptation to porn. You can't, or just sitting around and scrolling on, on your phone and just filling yourself up on emptiness such that there's now no room for the hunger of his word. Someone who can't do the little things isn't likely to do the big thing. It's highly unlikely that you would die for a faith that you, you won't live for. Death is only gain when living is Christ. Hear it? Death is only gain when living is Christ. And living is only Christ 
when the gospel has laid hold of your life more than a concept, more than a cause, and more than Christianity. But, at its, but just, it's grabbed a hold of you as just the deepest reality that you know how to live from. It, if the good news of the resurrection of Jesus in the past and then your resurrection just around the bend, if that's not what drives your lifestyle choices, then the, man, these words of Paul that we're reading, they can't be anything but a foreign language. You just can't get there. You can't make sense of it. And so maybe you're like, yeah, okay, I need the gospel. Remember, though, you can't work backwards to the gospel by living a certain way, mimicking Paul or doing certain rituals or trying to be like real Christian-y. The difference between all the other religions in the world and Christianity is that only one of them works from the inside out. We can't make our external good enough that it would make our souls clean before God and then we would be deserving of the gospel and we would have this abandoned life, free, invincible death, fearless life. The gospel is that God has done for us, Romans 8, 3, what our law-keeping could never do. God has done for us what our law-keeping could never do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's the gospel. Whose sin? He condemned sin in the flesh. Whose sin? Jesus's? Mine. It's mine. Whose flesh? Jesus's. This is the gospel, like, there's been an exchange that happened where my sin is condemned in his flesh because I couldn't do it on my own. And then, or look at First Peter, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, that he, Jesus would carry us where we couldn't walk on our own into the presence of God, home forever. The gospel... You can't grasp the gospel so much as the gospel grasps you. Like he lays hold of you in your ruined, messed up life. So let's move it to, from, from Paul to verse 27. And he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so wh- what does he mean by worthy? We, ju- we just said the gospel is that we're unworthy. <laughs> it's not saying live a way that deserves the gospel of grace. Like the gospel of grace is, is by definition for those who are undeserving. So it's not that we would live a life that deserves the gospel, but it's a style of life that is consistent with what you say you believe about the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel is a life consistent with what, you're, what we've been singing this morning and what you say you believe about him. It's an outer lifestyle that reflects an inner reality that's been forged by the gospel. Because if, the new, if news that is this good hasn't rearranged everything on the outside, 
How can you know that it's actually rearranged anything on the inside? The gospel works from the inside out, but you look at how you life, how you life, how do you life? Um, Is it consistent with what's been rearranged inside? Like, can you see that there's been a rearrangement of priorities on the outside? Oh, then you know that came from somewhere. God's done a work in here that's rearranged my priorities in my life. A life worthy of the gospel is not of our own works, but our works are there. It's our works that put a spotlight on his work, right? It's, a, it's our works that are consistent, commensurate with, in the direction of his work. Here's a quote. This is uh, Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary a couple hundred years ago. He said, we are not only to renounce evil, but to manifest the truth. We tell people the world is vain, means it's empty, means it's bankrupt. Let our lives manifest that it is so. We tell them that our home is above, and that all these things are transitory. Does our dwelling look like it? Do our houses look, look like this isn't our home? Oh, to lead, oh, to live consistent lives. That oh is so full of angst for me. Oh, to lead consistent lives worthy of the gospel. Here's another quote. This is Howard Guinness, again, a couple hundred years ago. And yes, this is of the Guinness family that started the business you might be thinking of. And he, Howard Guinness Uh, said, where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death, who will lose their lives for Christ, flinging them away for love of him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in this service? Where are the men of prayer? Where are the men who count God's word of more importance to them than their daily food? Where are the men who, like Moses of old, commune with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend? Where are God's men in this day of God's power? Like, where isn't, come on, let's get some consistency because we sing every week of his power and we preach and we nod our heads and say, amen, yes, he's so powerful. He can do anything in this world and do our lives amplify that power in our works. And in verse 29, spend the rest of our time, <coughs> he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So when I saw like, okay, suffering, I gotta, we gotta get there, I gotta preach suffering, and then I really realized, oh, this isn't just like, hey guys, life is hard. You know, this isn't like a college commencement address. Like, life is hard whether you're saved or not saved. Like, you will suffer because anyone will tell you that's just how it is. But th- Paul is saying something else, and he says it twice. 
It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This isn't suffering that's common to all mankind, just being in a screwed up world. This isn't suffering brought on by my sinful choices. This is suffering brought on by the fact that when I, ascri- when I live a life that honors Christ and ascribes him the highest worth, that's going to run in opposition to the systems of this world. Guaranteed. Whether you're in Iran or America. And he says it's been granted to you to suffer. Who's granting that gift? Text doesn't say. Do you know who's granting the gift? God's granting the gift. It's God's gift with the bow on top. And he says, here, I made this for you. Do you have a theology of suffering that's big enough for this verse? That God would not just allow, but maybe foreordain, maybe even give it to you. Suffering opportunities. Because if you desire to make it clear to the world that you prefer Christ that he's most important. If you desire to make that obvious, that you prefer Christ to any comfort the world can give you, any successful uh, status, or any, uh, any level of notoriety in the world, if you would prefer Jesus, then God will grant you opportunities to show that, to demonstrate, to manifest where your treasure is until people start to notice wow look at what he means to them maybe I need to give this a second thought the world might say like look at what Jesus means to this people so again what I, the sentence I gave you at the beginning the, in the mouth of a Christian this would come it says, in my living a lifestyle, embracing the gift of suffering, I yearn that Jesus would look as great as I found him to be for me. And in my dying, may it punctuate my life with the exclamation point of Jesus is better. So since there's no fear in death and, and there's no loss, the only gain of what we truly want, for now, we suffer. To wake as many as possible from the matrix. And, and for now it's been granted to us to spend our life, as verse 27 says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. <clears throat> Several years ago, I, I would say probably eight or nine years ago, um, I was on Facebook one day. And this is in the earlier days of Facebook, but one of my friends said this, he posted, the cross I shoulder isn't one of suffering, but one of complete victory. When Jesus said, take up your cross, he meant take up your victory. And I just like, Cassie, someone on the internet is wrong. And I just start typing and typing like, uh, that, made, that, that, got, that got under my skin. I was like, hold on, this is disregarding scripture like front to back I actually shared this verse it's been granted to us not just to believe in him but to suffer for his sake suffering is our victory 
Like when Jesus said, take up your cross, he meant take up your cross. And so I shared that. And now here, here's where it got interesting on the thread. A mutual friend jumps in. These aren't acquaintances. I'm, I'm not arguing with my, my cousin's friend about Trump. Or This was friends. And, and so my, our, our mutual friend jumps in and says, I'm inclined to agree with Joe. There are those that suffer. There are those that suffer and are put to death for, for mentioning of Christ's name, but I ain't one of those guys. As an American Christian, I have not been ridiculed, scrutinized, imprisoned, or belittled for the belief I have in Christ. Do I see it coming? Yes. Do I think it's around the corner? Possibly. But it hasn't reached my doorstep yet. Because from where I live... In this gated, secluded, have everything I've ever needed lifestyle, I'm not sure where the suffering for Christ part begins. I don't know, what do you think I felt after that response? That made me even more mad than the first one. I was livid and, and the thread dis- descended into a spiral from there, I think. I don't remember. I did save that, that chunk for some reason. And years later, now, rereading that, he's right. Meaning he's honest. If, if I were honest and if you were honest, we'd say the same damn thing. And listen, he said, because from where I live in this gated, secluded, have everything I've ever needed lifestyle, I'm not sure where the suffering for Christ part begins. It's hard for the rich, Jesus said, in the cozy security, you know, have all my needs met, all my wants met. It's hard for an American to enter the kingdom of Jesus. I've, I've heard many people say, you know, who have lived as a Christian in, in more difficult countries, they say, I don't know how you all live. I mean, I don't know how you would live as a, as a Christian in America. It, it, it's very hard like, to have an expectation that things are going to be convenient and straightforward and easy, that something tragic and suffering happens in 911. They're there in two and a half minutes. I don't know how you could orient your life to what Jesus has laid out for us when, when the expectation is that we're going to have the comfortable lifestyle. I mean, how is Jesus going to look as satisfying as he is if he's a means to your comfortable life? A butler going to bring you some more poolside drinks. Thank you, Jesus. You know, your neighbor might see, you know, your, your life, you're comfortable like they are, and you say, thank you, Jesus, at the end of, of all your blessings. And he might say, I worked my tail off in grad school for years to get where I am. But if you, wanted, if you attribute your level to Jesus, okay, cool. <clears throat> 400 years ago, a great preacher, John Owen, pointed out that men love to trust God for what they already have in their hands or what lies in easy view. But if you just simply move the thing out of sight interpose difficulties and suffering, their hearts are instantly sick, he says. They cannot wait for God. They do not trust him, nor ever did. 
I mean, all over the New Testament, suffering is laid out as the road of a Christian's life. It's the dear friend of, a, of joyful Christianity. And so comfort is the great enemy to suffering. And so our desire for comfort, and if you can't acknowledge that, like, we don't have time <laughs> to deal with that, but that you, I, I, you should be able to put your hand up and say, yep, I have a desire for comfort and for security and things to be convenient. And that would be a great enemy to our true salvation. In Romans 5, it says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So did you see him connect these dots between suffering and the love of God? Right? You don't suffer because God's upset with you. You'd suffer because he loves you. He's working endurance in you that's more precious than gold. And endurance produces character. Character, he's working in you hope. Now, hope's not going to be put to shame because the love of God can then be poured into your heart. It's in the pain that our fists can be unclenched from all the stuff. And he can, in our disappointment and lack He can lift our chin and introduce himself as a friend, as a father who's been watching you since the day you were born, who, as you sleep, sings over you, the Bible says. You know, I think in those quiet moments as you sleep and all the fearful striving just subsides and it's just quiet being. And God's in love with you in that moment. See, you were made for this. I was made for this life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. It's been granted to me to suffer. It's been granted to you. It's a gift to suffer for his sake. You were made for this. In his love, it's his love, not his disappointment, not his anger, not his being upset with you. But you might say, yeah, I see that. I see it in scripture. But look, I'm, I'm too messed up, Micah. I, I, I need to work on me first. There's so much that's messed up before I can talk about that high, virtuous Christian calling, I'm not there, preacher. But what if God, if he's wanting to proclaim the good news of a savior, what if he had the crazy idea to to proclaim it through someone who knows what it's like to be saved from something? What if he's looking for someone who has made a royal dump of their life through their choices and then surrendered, unclenched their hands and surrendered 
and is being made into a beautiful picture of the glory of God. The glory of a God who makes all things new. So I'm like, let me say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, y'all get out there and suffer. Like, you better be miserable. But rather, I'm saying, find Jesus. And if you find Jesus to be as compelling as Paul did, you'll find his steadfast love to be better than life. And then you'll say, yeah, for me to live is Christ. I don't know about everyone else in church. I don't know about everyone else in my family or the world. But I do know for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. When that's true for you, you'll spend your life to spread his fame to the darkest corners of this world to unplug as many from the matrix and, and wake them up to reality in the love of God and when you do, you'll find resistance. You'll find suffering, or much more accurately, suffering will find you. And when you face deep loss, you'll find that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not put you to shame. Your hope in Christ will not put you to shame on that day and the love of God is spread abroad in our hearts so I'm going to I'm going to try I'm going to try to pray in public anyone that's tried to do that before knows it's actually pretty difficult I'm going to pray for me and if it's resonating with you voice that prayer to God or whatever you are experiencing in this moment open your hands if you would like on your lap God, I, I don't know how to get there from here. I feel like I need like turn-by-turn navigational instruction to get from where I'm living to where y- you are and where, you're, where you've called us. But maybe your word has, has guided, guided me Maybe your word is clear, and I'm just scared. And for me, to live as my wife, to live as my kids, my daughters, for me to live is making something of, of my life. And so I, I just confess, I, I can't change myself I can't fix myself I can't make myself have holy desires that I can't muster up but I just I just come asking that you would do the work that you need to do through suffering through whatever it takes I know it's a dangerous prayer But I want Jesus more than my manageable existence. I want to know him. I want to know what Paul found so compelling 
I'm here, Jesus, I'm ready. And we surrender in your name. Amen.